I'm on now. Better, thank you. So, I was at a, um, I was with partnership role this week at a, um, a meeting of church planters, people who start new churches. It's always encouraging to be with uh, such people um, when you hear what they're, they're doing. And, uh, and, and it's great. Some of them, you know, one of the guys there has planted uh, three churches and he's looking not to stop there. And those churches are going on. By the way, one of the encouraging things is, that I've heard more than once now, is that although there are many churches closing, um, there are now more churches being planted than closing. Uh, if you look across the wide spectrum of uh, a church in the UK, which is great to hear. There are many different shapes and sizes and all the rest of it. Is that the way the church grows? Through church planters? Or through evangelists? Like Billy Graham? Is that how the church grows? Does the church grow through great revivals? Some of us look, have read about some of the revivals that have happened in the UK and other parts of the world. Is that how the church grows? Through God's amazing uh, work at specific times in specific places with specific people? Or is it through our programs, through doing things well, things being connected, well organized, whatever? We could add to those lists, doesn't it? And the truth is that God uses all of those things to grow his church. And we give thanks for them. But how did the early church grow? So it had no buildings. It had no Bible, as we have. So they had the Old Testament and uh, other writings, perhaps as Paul over time. But not, not, not a Bible in the sense that we had. Many of them were forced to become refugees that were pushed out, living away from home. So how did the early church grow? Well, I've read, and you may have read, various um, summaries of the life of the early church in the, in the first, second, and third centuries. And basically, here, here's a quotation that I've, I've seen, uh, a summary that I've seen in different places recorded by different people who've looked into these things. Their mission depended primarily on the witness of unknown Christians. We think of Peter and Paul and whatever else, and they did. God used them. But most of the witness and mission of the church was by unknown Christians. And how did they do that? Through four things. Countless acts of kindness. Family and friendship connections, provocative discipleship, and significant conversations. Evangelism was a lifestyle, not a specialist activity. Evangelism was a lifestyle, not a specialist activity. The mission of the church was something that everyone could be involved in. Yes, at times there were, no doubt, great evangelists. At times there were, if you like, what we might refer as revival. But the majority of the growth of the early church in those early centuries was by ordinary Christians living the life and sharing the good news. 
So when we come to think about ourselves and when we think about the church in the UK and the church in Gloucester and the church here, in a sense, ourselves, how do we think we're going to grow? You see, like the early, there are some similarities with the early church. We are now, in our country, marginalized. We're a small minority of people, less than 5%. We are often, as we know, misinterpreted in the way that the media uh, talks about us and describes us and the things they say about us. We're not persecuted in the way that the early church was in this country, but we are certainly on the margins. And we also have a lot more resources, practical resources, financial resources, uh, buildings, etc., that the early church did not possess. How is the church going to grow? Well, last week we looked at the first R, and Mark was looking at how the church grows through relationships. The church grows through individuals out there getting to know Christians. And in some way, through that, getting to know the Christ that they follow. This week, we're going to look, as we've already heard, the church grows through a lifestyle that builds respect. Let me tell you a story that some of you will have heard at Living the Passion last year. So it's not my story, but remind you. This is set in the late 1990s. In, um, in the Middle East, the first Iraq war. The uh, Iraqis had tried to invade the, it seems a long time ago, doesn't it, invade the, the oil fields in Kuwait. And they'd been pushed back. There was a, a pushback. And as a result of that, a lot of Iraqis fled from Iraq uh, into Jordan. A bit like what's happened now, of course, in more recent times with, with uh, Syria and the conflict there. And at that time, the crown prince of Jordan came to the leader of the church in Jordan and said, we have so many people that are coming here seeking refuge. Can you help us? I realize that most of the people that are crossing the border are Muslims and you're Christians, but can you do anything to help? And as a result of that, this, the guy he was speaking to, this guy called Hussan, Hussain said, yes, we will, we will see what we can do. And as a result, churches were opened for Muslim people to sleep in. And many Christians opened their homes for Muslim families to come and live with them. And a family of five went to live with Hassan. After about living with them for about six months, the father of the family got up deliberately got up early one morning and he went down and he met and he went down because he knew that Hassan would be down getting ready and getting breakfast and he went down and he simply said why are you being so kind to us I know you're Christians he'd not talked anything about his faith by the way at this stage I know you're Christians and you know that we're Muslims so why would you show us this hospitality? Why would you put yourself out? It must have been quite a crowded house to have another family come and live with them. Why would you do that? And this is what he said. He said, I just wanted to reflect something of the love of Christ 
that I have experienced for myself. I just want to show, I just want to show something of what I personally have come to know and have received. And then through that, went on to share more of the gospel. That man became a believer, his wife and children also. But they were not the only ones. They were not the only ones. After this crisis, that same man, Hussan, said, Do you know what? There are now more Iraqi Christians living in Oman than there are Jordanian believers. And that is not just then, is it? The same is happening now, particularly in Germany. There are many Muslims that have come to faith in Germany. There are churches that are full of people who have become, if you like, Muslim followers of Isa, followers of Jesus. I've heard of one where there were several hundred that have come to faith. And again, a lot of it is to do with the fact that Christians were willing to step out and show kindness and hospitality to these people. And in a small way, a much smaller way, the same thing is happening here, even in our own city. There are people from a Muslim background who become Christians because of the love that they've been shown by Christians. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he said, he said, you are our letter, known and read by everybody, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Your living letters, your letters that people can read. They may not read the gospel, they may not the Bible, they may not read, they may not read in a sense what's going on in church, but they can read your lives. You are living letters of the gospel. And that's what God wants you to be. If people are going to glorify God, honor and respect God, then substantially it will be because what they see in us. That is the reality. We are the message that they're going to hear. They are, we are the lives that they're going to see. They're not going to come into this building. All the surveys show, by the way, it's still good to ask people to come. But the, all the surveys show that the vast majority of people are not these days willing to come into a church, even in a public place like this. They're not willing to come in. They're not going to hear somebody speaking here from the front explaining the gospel. The majority. So if the majority are going to hear the gospel, it's not going to be through church or even through evangelistic events, because we'd want to encourage those things to happen. Why would we want to do that? Why would we want people, why would we want to live in that way? Well, there's a couple of things here in this passage which we can't go into in great detail. But in verse 9, where Paul, where, um, not Paul, where Chris started reading what Peter, I'm going to keep trying to say Paul, I think, what Peter had written. He said, doesn't he, these things. He says to this minority of Christians that are spread out across the, across the Roman Empire, that see themselves as probably a small, marginalized group, he says to them, this is who you truly are. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
and in the previous verses, he talks about them being those living stones built into the temple. Now, all the things that Paul, that Paul said, all the things that Peter says there, see how many times I do that. Don't, don't start applauding, by the way. But uh, Peter, yeah, uh, the things that Peter says there were, in a sense, all things that were descriptions applied to Israel. We could look back into the Old Testament and we could see that those descriptions apply to us. And now Peter is applying those same descriptions to this group of people which comprise both Jews and Gentiles. And he says, this is what God has made you. This is who you are. You see, church is not primarily about even meeting together like this on a Sunday. Because that's how we tend to think of church. That's what comes often first to mind, isn't it? And it is important that we meet together on Sundays. No, I'm not going the opposite direction. But actually, that primarily is not what church is. Church is about being the people of God. People who have received mercy and now want to live in the light of the mercy and the grace that they've received. And that's really important. So that we may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is who we are. This is who God has made us to be. Secondly, we want to live those grace-filled lives because we love Jesus. And if we don't love Jesus, we won't live those lives. Paul Peter, I knew this was going to happen. Once I've got something stuck in my mind, I'm stuck. Like people's names, once I get them wrong, I go on getting them wrong. But anyway, Peter, in the previous um, chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, he said, Though you've not seen him, that's Jesus, though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You love Jesus. And you know what? We can see it. Other people can see it because of what, what's coming. The joy that you have, that inexpressible joy. Enthusiasm is infectious, isn't it? Enthusiasm is infectious. Kim, Kim works with a lady who's a, um, a vegan and several times, it must be infectious, because not that Kim's trying to persuade me, but this lady is trying to persuade Kim and all her colleagues that they should become vegans. And she is incredibly enthusiastic about it. She's an evangelist for veganism. And um, as I said, I don't think it will go too far uh, with me. Not, certainly not at, the, not at the moment. But people who have an enthusiasm can call, pull people into that, can't they? I mean, if I was to speak about fishing this morning... You know, and, and all the joys of fishing and, and how wonderful it is and how you're out there in nature and, and whatever else. I'm sure I could enthuse some of you to take up fishing. Well, maybe not. <laughs> Never mind. When I look back at my coming to faith and committing my life to God, when I was 16, 17... When I look at it from a human perspective, we know God works, has been working in many ways. But a key thing was a 17-year-old who came to faith, somebody just a bit older than me. And when he came to faith, 
he was enthusiastic about his faith. You could see, you could see the difference in a real way. He, wasn't, he was willing now to stand up. He was head, to, head boy for his school. He was willing at his school to stand up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, just like now, he got flack and all the rest of it for that. But he was enthusiastic for his, for his Lord Jesus. And that affected me because I saw the difference. These people loved God. Reading verse 7 of chapter 2. Now to you who believe, this stone, that's Jesus, is precious. They loved God and therefore they wanted to declare his praises. I heard a story um, uh, this week. Um, it's a guy called Milton Cunningham. He's American. I've never heard of him before. Um, I've looked it up to see that it's true. And uh, he was uh, on a plane in the United States. And, you know, there are three seats. Three seats. And he had the middle one. And on this side of him, there was a young girl with Down syndrome. And on this side of him, well, there was a guy who was smartly dressed. Didn't know anything about him. Milton Cunningham thought he was going to have a, a, a good sleep on this plane, but he quickly realized that might not be the case. Because after a few minutes, the little girl nudged him. And she said, uh, Mister, have you cleaned your teeth? <laughs> and uh, thankfully, he could look at her and say, uh, yes, I have. Yeah, and, she said, and she said, it's good that you clean your teeth. A few minutes later, Hey, mister, um, do you smoke? Thankfully, he could say, no, no, I don't smoke. She said, that's good. My mom says it's bad to smoke. Bad to smoke. A few minutes later, mister, do you love Jesus? And thankfully, of course, he could say, well, actually, this guy was a missionary. Um, yes, I do. I'm a Christian. I do love Jesus. And she said, that's good that you love Jesus. Then she knocks him again and she said, mister, you know that man next to you? Did he clean his teeth today? <laughs> And so he went along, he said, I hope you don't mind me asking, but did you, cl did you clean your teeth today? And the guy looked along and he could see then that she was Down syndrome. And of course he was sympathetic and said, yes, I did. But you can see where this is going, can't you? <laughs> Mister, does he smoke? And then finally, Mister, does he love Jesus? And the missionary tried to sort of dampen it down at this stage and say, you know, that's not really the sort of question we ask. But she wasn't going to be put off. Mister, does he love Jesus? So reluctantly, this missionary turned to the guy next to him and he said, I hope you don't mind me asking, sir, but um, this little girl here would like to know if you love Jesus. And the guy looked at him and his face he frowned. And then he said, 
do you know what? I've been running from God all my life. And I need to find a way to Jesus. And then through the rest of that flight, Milton spoke to him about the gospel, shared the gospel with him, and this guy committed his life to following Jesus. That little girl was enthusiastic for her faith as well as for cleaning teeth and (laughs) not smoking. We need to experience, if we've experienced and received God's grace in our lives, we need to let other people see that. And Jesus taught, didn't he, his followers to do the same. He said to them, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who treat treat you. And because Jesus did that himself, his very life encapsulated that, those, those sentiments, those, those thoughts. He taught his disciples and he said, you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Salt and light. Salt, I can still remember Graham Dancy's talking about salt when we did that passage in Luke. But the, and he gave us various reasons for salt, but I'm just going to pick on the main one, I think. And that is that salt was used as a preservative, wasn't it? It was used, used to preserve food, keep it from going bad. Yeah? And light. Well, light was necessary in a, in a society where there were no, no electricity, so they lit lights. But salt would only do its job if it was brought into contact with the food that it was meant to be preserving. It's no good while it stayed on the shelf. The light is no good while it's got a cover on it. They only do their job. They only preserve and light penetrates. They only preserve and penetrate if they are allowed to do their work. And Jesus says to his disciples, that's you guys. You're to be the salt of the earth. You're to be the light of the world. Jesus was that while he was with us. He came for sick people. People that needed a doctor or knew that they needed a doctor. And he wasn't just talking about physically sick. He came that he might be the light to the world so that people might receive that light and the life that he brought. John Stott said, The calling for Christians is to be morally distinct without being socially segregated. But we have often confused the two. We're to be morally distinct without being socially segregated. That's when Jesus talked, didn't he, about being in the world, but not of the world. And that's why he sent his disciples into the world. Just as, you, just as I've been sent into the world, I am sending you, them into the world. Sending you into the world. To be people that live distinctive lives. Okay, let's very quickly look at a couple of verses in this chapter 1. Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. How are we to be distinctive? So to this group of Christians on the margins, very small What's he say to them? Does he say, go and hole up in your bunkers? Just go on meeting quietly, whatever else. Is that what he says? He doesn't. He says, dear friends, Peter says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. 
They were to leave something, leave something behind, and that was their sinful desires. Secondly, live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now that may be talking specifically about when Christ returns, but it might also be the day that they are visited when they become Christians, that they would then see that, that they were responding in, to what they'd seen in the lives of other Christians, the way that they lived, the way that they lived their lives. Okay, let's look at two things here that, that I think it says. First of all, I think it says we should live a life of integrity. Our society is not one of integrity, is it? Many of the institutions that people used to look up to and hold in quite high esteem have one by one fallen in terms of what's gone on. Whether that be in business itself or in, indeed in terms of uh, our government and MPs. We think of MPs, expense, expense problems and all the rest of it. By the way, I'm not talking about everyone. We know there are many people who still seek to live honourable lives. But whether it be the BBC, and, and we could go on and on and on. Dominoes have fallen. And we do see, we see, we live in a world of the lack of integrity. And Christians are called to be people who live with integrity. That's what I think, that's what Peter is saying here. Leave, abstain from sinful desires. And he said it further on in, in chapter 3 as well. We're to live lives of integrity. When we talk about integrity, when we talk about a building having integrity, we're talking about a building that holds together in the way that it's designed. We can say that that building has integrity. Its structures are sound. It's safe. But of course, as we realize, and these happen regularly, don't they, reported on our news, Buildings produced in some of the other countries of the world, people have cut corners. They've not followed the proper designs. They've used inferior concrete. They haven't bothered putting all the steel in they're supposed to put. And what happens? The building collapses. Instead of having integrity, it disintegrates. And that's what happens in people's lives. When their lives, when our lives do not have integrity... Their lives disintegrate. And Christians are called to be people who have, live, with, live with integrity. To be well integrated. To say what we... To, to do and live as we say we believe. We talk, use the phrase, don't we? To walk the talk. Sometimes you might see a video or a program. Um, uh, and we've had it here isn't it? occasionally where... The, the words are not in line with the picture. They're talking at a different, slightly different, um, out of line with the sound. It's very off-putting, isn't it? They're out of sync. Out of sync. We're called to live lives that are in sync. In sync with God himself and his, what he wants for us. So we should live with integrity. It gave us various things that we could list here, which we don't have time to go into. But we should be respectful of those in authority. Submit yourself, for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors um, 
who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king. Be like Be like your Savior, the Lord Jesus, in the way that he lived. We live in a society where everyone, where particularly our media, slags off everything. Don't they? And that's not good. It's not good for our society. It causes us all to become more cynical. We're to be those who don't do that. So how are you speaking? How am I speaking about Brexit at the moment? Whatever our views... How are we speaking about our government? How are we speaking about people? Are we just joining in? I think I probably have. And criticizing? Are we the sort that join in the gossip? Let's bring it more personal. Are we the sort that join in the gossip where we work? When people are talking about other people? What about even in church? Do we gossip about others? times we do we're to tell the truth we're not to gossip we're to be faithful in our relationships we're to do what we said we'd do we're to treat everyone with respect even people who disagree with us and dignity We're to live lives of integrity. And secondly, we're to live good lives. We're to be like Jesus. I love that description of Peter when he's talking to Cornelius. What does he say? He says this. This is his summary. Now, I know he could have said many other things, but this is his summary in Acts 10.38. He says to Cornelius and the people there, he said, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Jesus went around doing good. And we could reminded last week, I'm sure, and, and we could look at many passages, couldn't we, at, at how Jesus dealt with people, how he responded to people. And John in his letter says, Whoever claims to live in him, that's Jesus, must walk as Jesus did. We need to be we need to be the evangelistic events for people. Not just think of inviting them to evangelistic events, but we need to be the evangelistic events for people. We are the adverts for what we believe. As we see we could read more passages here as we look at Jesus and the way that he was, how he, didn't retali- how he didn't retaliate. Don't retaliate. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. Chapter 3, verse 9. How can you bless others? Patricia's talked about the, the 40 acts of kindness during the 40 days of Lent. But in a sense, it's not just confined to Lent, is it? How could you bless others? 
I remember Rico Tai speaking um, some time ago, and, and, and he was very simple. He said, I simply, every person, every person I come into some contact with, I simply say, how could I bless this person? How could I serve this person? What could I do for this person that would give, give them the opportunity to see something of God's grace and give me the opportunity, maybe, at some stage, to talk to them about the gospel that I believe? How could I bless this person? How, as a church, could we bless our community? When pray for Ben, as we've heard, when he goes into when he goes into the academy tomorrow to have a, his first proper conversation with them, I was with a, a guy, a, a church leader, just this last week down in Plymouth, and they live right opposite the biggest secondary school in Plymouth. And they're saying to the school, "How can we bless you as a school? What can we do that would bless you? What could we do that would help you as a school?" How could we bless? When we started our little, tiny little forefront community centre down in Chard, before we, got, before we bought the local bank, we had a little shop. And we had on the shop, it was two shop, you know, normal shop, glass windows. We put across the top, in great big letters, we had it properly printed, three foot high, 10, 15 foot wide. We are here to help. We are here to help. Didn't do much actually, but people came in, and if we could help, we helped. Whatever it was, whether it was fixing a tire, or cleaning somebody's garden, if we could help, we'd help. We became known as the church that's here to help. That wasn't a bad testimony, was it? Not a bad testimony. We don't have a building. We can't do that. But how could we bless this community? Maybe that's something you'd like to talk about in your groups. And finally, we, as it says in 2.15, as Peter says, be always... Sorry, I'm looking at 3.15. No, it is 3.15 indeed, isn't it? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect. We need to be willing, and as not just often it may not be us that's called on to give the answer. They may ask somebody else the question. Tim Keller talks about mercy and evangelism, word and deed, and they're not to be separated, but a single means for the spread of the kingdom of God. He said they're like smoke and fire. Where one is, the other must be. So how does the church on the margins grow? The same way the early church grew. Here's what somebody wrote. It wasn't a Christian about the early church in the second century. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet they endure all things as foreigners. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, and are persecuted by all. We build respect through lives of integrity. We build respect through seeking to bless others by doing good. And at the same time, we're ready to say why that's the case. Not because we're good, 
because we want to express something of God's goodness that we ourselves have received.